Well, I just want to say welcome everybody one more time to Encounter Church. And uh, just going to start off this morning with like this much uh, housekeeping to do. And just to, to highlight a couple things, clarify some things. Uh, last month at Encounter, we celebrated what we have been calling for the last few years, doing good month at Encounter Church. And what, what that means, in case maybe this is, uh, is your first time here, first couple times here, is we pick out an organization that is just absolutely crushing it in the name of Jesus. Like an organization based right here in West Michigan, preferably Grand Rapids. And we pick out an organization that is the hands and feet of Jesus doing Jesus-y kind of work here in Grand Rapids. And this year we picked ICCF, that's vision is to end generational poverty one family at a time by addressing the affordable housing crisis here in Grand Rapids. And we said, you know, highlighting this thing all month long, and you guys are like, are we still hearing about this? It's December now. I thought we moved on. Just wrapping it up. I'm not going to ask for anything, I promise. We're just highlighting some work. Um, as, a, as of the count this morning, I think it was 252 unique gifts given to, to renovate this house in Southeast Grand Rapids on Alto Street uh, to create some more affordable housing. 252 unique gifts, 92 uh, items given, gifts given in kind uh, towards affordable housing, uh, grand total of dollars giving, $34,599. Can we just celebrate that for a moment? And you guys are so incredible, incredibly generous. I just, it's God's faithfulness welling up through your generosity. It's the coolest thing in the world to go to a church. It's the coolest thing for me to be the pastor of such an incredibly generous, giving church that we, we come here and we're like, we are making a difference uh, in the city of Grand Rapids, ending generational poverty, this one family at a time. So stay tuned on what happens with the house. We're going to follow that project and there's more to get involved, especially as the uh, thaw out and head towards, towards spring. Uh, okay, hard pivot this morning into, uh, into a brand new series we're kicking off uh, today. And the name of the series is called Broken Saviors. And what we're doing is we're taking a look and we're studying the book of Judges in kind of our lead up to Christmas this year. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a funky thing, and I just want to own that. It's like studying judges to prepare our hearts for Jesus at Christmas. Like, what, you know, what exactly is that all about? And so if you want to learn more, on our website, counterchurch.org, we, uh, we have a, a devotional that was written in-house, actually for this purpose, called Broken Saviors. So you can follow along the devotional each, uh, uh, each weekday uh, throughout as we, as we lead up to Christmas time. But I thought, uh, I thought the best way to intro, like, kind of why judges for Christmas is to play a little game together. So here's what we're going to do. It's, uh, it's, it's a Christmas movie game. Everybody's invited to participate. Fulton Heights, uh, Kenwood, if you're watching online, in a coffee shop, whatever. Um, by show of applause, your favorite Christmas movie. And I've got a few of them to pick up here on the screen this morning. Okay, how many of you, your favorite Christmas movie is Home Alone? Home Alone? We got a couple of Home Alone? Nice. Awesome. Honestly, that was much stronger than I anticipated, so we're going to keep on going. Um, I thought maybe to update things for, uh, for a newer generation, family favorite in my house, Elf, right? There we go. Now we're talking. Okay, maybe uh, rewinding to a different generation. Uh, before you clap, before you clap, it's the Santa Claus, but this could be any of them. The Santa Claus, Mrs. Claus, the Escape Claus, the limited edition miniseries on Disney+. Plus. Any of the Santa Clauses, go ahead. Okay, a little, 
a little weak. That's all right. That's, they kept making them, so just maybe the next one will be, be even better. Um, okay, controversial, but I have to ask anyway. How many of you, favorite Christmas movie, Die Hard? <laughs> that, yes! I didn't know which way that was going to cut. I, did, I, thought, I thought like nobody would clap for Die Hard in church. I, it kind of shows me a little bit like what church we are. Like we're the Die Hard as a Christmas movie kind of church. That's fine. If, if you're offended by 40 stories of sheer terror, when you're done polishing your halo, come on back. Like that's fine. You're good. There's a lot of message for you guys too. Um, we, we, play a little, we play a little game because honestly, you guys... Reading Judges in preparation for Christmas is a lot like watching Die Hard as a Christmas movie, okay? There's violence, there's blood, there's gore, there's a little bit of profanity, maybe. I don't know. I'm a Christian. I haven't seen it. There's a... (laughs) Right? But throughout the whole time, there's like complicated, you know, heroes, anti-heroes. Am I really going for that guy? I mean, it feels right, so let's go. Like, this whole, like, movie kind of works for the book of Judges, um, because what we see is a lot of the violence, a lot of the kind of uh, complicated uh, protagonists in the story that you're not really sure if you, if you should be going for them. But in the background, there's Christmas. Like in the background, there's ornaments hanging. In the background, there's tinsel being put up around the tree. Like in the background, Christmas is present. So that's how I would like us to approach Christmas this year and studying this this weird book of Judges, this violent book of Judges, but also recognize that this thing is going to have like this, this downward spiral that just looks absolutely hopeless. And, and meanwhile, I'd like us to, in the back of our minds, going, yes, this is how God decorates for Christmas. We're going to take a look at these, uh, these Judges stories. And like I said, it's just a downward spiral. So if you think like this one is a little bit compromised and a little bit out there, a little bit violent, a little bit weird... Just stay tuned until part four. And then we're going to continue to get after Christmas. I mean, it just, it just gets so much worse. And it, it, it almost looks like there's no hope at all. But remember, this is how God decorates for Christmas. Uh, we're going to get into the Ehud story in Judges chapter three, if you'd like to follow along. Ehud story, Judges chapter three. It's a fun one because he's, uh, he's notoriously left-handed. And a lot of people, even if you didn't grow up in church, you kind of remember, oh yeah, there's a kind of like story about the, the, the lefty. Especially if, if you're a lefty, do we have any left-handed people in the, I should raise my left hand. Nice. And you're raising your left hand too. That's so perfect. Way to go, guys. Like, like you did it. Um, it's, kind of, it's a quirky world being left-handed. So we're, we got to embrace that to kind of understand what we're going to call this morning the Ehud advantage that you lefties uh, have going for you. The Ehud advantage. It's a quirky thing being left-handed. A lot of stuff, you, know, like you, you guys know, especially kids, you're, you're finding this out already. Things in life don't often like, work like they normally should. Like a scissors with a left hand is just kind of like a little bit, little bit wonky on that way. Uh, I'm not too proud to admit I married a left-hander, right? I know, it's my act of generosity to the world. I'm just, I'm going to get in trouble for that uh, later on. But uh, my wife is left-handed. She tells me that she got so sick at the, like, the dinner table, so sick of uh, bumping people with her left hand and their, and their right arm, she forced herself as a kid to learn how to eat a fork and spoon with her right hand because it's just, the world is too complicated to be left-handed. She's going to learn something new. Um, you're, you're used to writing, you know, and like smearing the ink or the, the, the lead with your hand and getting all nasty. I mean, the world wasn't built for left-handers. Those of you who golf know how difficult it is to find left-handed clubs 
And then every time you do, your right-handed friends want to like, hey, let me give, give, give your rare club a shot. And they just like smash this thing right into the ground every time. Like you understand that the world wasn't built around left-handers. I didn't know this. But uh, zippers, like on pants, because that like flap that's in front of all zippers, like lefties have a hard time with that. Just, we're just trying, as righties, we got to grow our empathy for the left-handed, for those lefties among us. The world wasn't built. The uh, world wasn't built for lefties. There's some perks. You're, you're more likely statistically to be, uh, to be a genius, IQ over 140. If you're lefty, nobody really, nobody really knows why that is. Uh, it's a huge advantage in sports because you do everything kind of backwards and it throws your opponents off. So disproportionate number of professional athletes who are left-handed. Lefties have an easier time, this is true, I looked it up, easier time seeing underwater. Again, nobody knows why. But the next time you're in a competition of underwater hide-and-seek, like, (laughs) draft the lefties, okay? Uh, Throughout history, there has been words assigned to left-handers in particular, words assigned to just using the word left, and they haven't been kind. And it's just, I'm using that as kind of a stand-in to say, history has often kind of looked on left-handers with a little bit of suspicion. In Latin, the word is sinistere, uh, for, for the word left is where we get our word sinister from. Uh, in, uh, in French, the word left is gauche. In Old English, it simply means weak. And those of you who ski and snowboard at the top of the hill, if you see somebody going down the hill with your left foot as the rear steering foot, you call them goofy. Exactly. That's what it means to be left-handed historically. I mean, to be a lefty. It's sinister, looked on with suspicion, it's weak, it's gauche, and it's just plain goofy. Enter Judges 3 and our man Ehud. Let's go to the story. Uh, we're going to pick up Judges chapter 3 in verse 12. And we've got it displayed on the screen so that you can see it. Okay, so we're starting off and we said, again, the, evils, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This is the pattern. They do bad. God send, sends this uh, oppressor. Uh, A judge rescues them. They're good for a little while, and then they turn away from God again. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. Um, And because they did this evil, uh, I also want to highlight, by the way, evil in the eyes of the Lord. There's this repeated refrain throughout the book of Judges that the people did what was right in their own eyes and evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's just kind of a fun thing I want you to know. Um, uh, Because because they did this evil, uh, the Lord gave Eglon... King of, Mo, uh, King of Moab, power over Israel. And it just sounds like an evil name, like Eglon. If you're going to make one up, you're going to go with this one. They didn't make it up. This is history. Eglon, King of Moab, power over Israel. Also, and this is new, uh, the Ammonites, getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. They took possession of the city of Palms. We also call that Jericho. So, <laughs> like Joshua and the previous book, Joshua fighting the battle of Jericho, you know, he defeats this city, not with an army, but a marching band, right? And the walls came tumbling down. That's a pretty big victory. And then to, to on the heels of that, lose that city to, to these guys, it's a pretty big loss, right, that they're taking. So the Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, uh, for 18 years. And I, I just share all of this history to say, um, points make a line, you guys. Uh, points make a line. And what we're seeing in the story so far is uh, Ehud is going to be the second judge. And the first one, it was one king. It was a little bit of oppression. And then, and then peace right after that. The next point in the line is Ehud as the judge. And we see not one king, three kings. 
We see them lose the city of Jericho. So like there's significant losses that are wrecking up here. And we also see the king of Moab reigned over Israel for 18 years. It's a decade longer than the previous subjugation. I mean, if points make a line, where this thing is pointing is not a hopeful place to be. Verse 15. Okay, again, this is the repetition. Again, the Israelites, they cried out to the Lord. They're asking for help. And he gave them a deliverer, another word for judge. And the judge in this case was Ehud. And this is what kind of story it is. Ehud, comma, a left-handed man, son of Gera, the Benjaminite. And when you unpack this in the original language, it's funny. It's meant to be a little funny. It's meant to be a little quirky. We can laugh at this. The word Benjamin means son of my right hand. And he's a lefty. It's like the, the author here of Judges is like, man, this guy just doesn't belong. Now, again, in the, in the original language, he's a, he's a left-handed man. Literally though, literally, though, it says that he couldn't use his right hand. It paints this picture that he wasn't like left-handed by, by birth necessarily. He was left-handed by necessity. Like, it, it paints this picture. Maybe it's, maybe it's a birth defect. Maybe working on a farm, fighting in a battle. His right hand, you just picture him, and I want you to picture him. He's, he's crippled. Like, like, his hand is withered. And so by necessity, he's learned to rely. He's learned to get through life using his left hand. And that's what kind of person it was. One commentator on the passage said, the world back then was even more cruel to disabled people than the world is today. Ehud lives a hard life. Which is why it's surprising in the next line that the Israelites sent him with a tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. We're starting to lay the foundation for what we're calling this morning the Ehud advantage. Ehud is picked to carry the tribute, not in spite of him being crippled, disabled, a withered hand, but because he has a crippled, withered right hand. Uh, Ehud, Ehud made a double-edged sword about a cubic long, about a foot and a half, 18 inches, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing, right? Because you draw it with the opposite hand. And so usually, even you, you see statues, um, like a suit of armor, and they'll have like the sword on the left hand because you'd like, whoosh, you know, do one of those things. Um, but he does it, obviously, on the other side because his, his right, hand, right hand doesn't work real well. Um, a cubic line, which he strapped to his, uh, his right side under his clothing, and he presented the tribute. So he loads up, you know, all this, uh, this, this gold, and he brings it to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. There's a lot of questions that I got going on in this thing. Um, the first thing is, like, how did he sneak a foot and a half knife through TSA? Like, how does that happen, right? Uh, and again, we're kind of pointing, we're laying the foundation of the Ehud advantage, aren't we? It's not like they didn't notice him. It's, worse, it's far worse than that. They noticed him, and they just didn't think he mattered. They didn't care about him. He's, like, less than human. It's like, what, what are you going to be a threat? Oh, cool, you, you brought a cute knife. Awesome, Right? Your, your hand doesn't even work. What are you going to do with a knife? Right? He's, a, he's the butt of a joke for them. All right? But the joke is actually going to be on them because the author here finishes off this little paragraph by saying, he's a very fat man. And you're like, is that really a necessary detail? <laughs> yes, it is. It's necessary to the development of the story. A lot of you have heard this one already, and we'll get there. But, but it's also necessary to say, how did he get fat? There was not a lot of large people around the world back then. 
Uh, he got that way, and it's kind of like this, this philosophical point. Uh, he got that way by eating, by taking the riches, the harvest of the people of Israel. So it's kind of like this double entendre. Yeah, he's a, he's a big fella, and he got that way off our backs, right? And also, it's, it's going to be important for the rest of the story. Um, verse, uh, ver- verse 18, um, after Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. Remember, because he's, he's got a bad right hand. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon. He's like, hey guys, you wait right here. I'm going to quick, you know, I left, I left my wallet, you know, in the, in the king's room. So I'm going to go run back and, you know, grab that thing. He goes back to the king and he goes, your majesty, I've got a secret message for you. And the king is like, yes. You know, what is it? You know what? I'll bet it's a hidden map and invisible ink on the back of the Declaration of Independence. I'll bet that's what it is. You know, like his mind is racing. Like, what could it? It's a national treasure reference. Okay, well, it's good. You know, what could this thing possibly be? He's like, the king gets all, gets all excited about this. And then Ehud approached them while he was sitting, keyword, alone in the upper room of his palace. And he said, I have a message. Now he elevates it. And he says, this is it. Hey, I want you to know that. This message I'm going to give you, it doesn't come from me. This message comes directly for God for you. And as the king arose from his seat, he's a big fella, so it takes just a minute. As the king is coming up from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand and he drew the sword, this little dagger guy, uh, from his right thigh and he plunged it into the king's belly. It's, it's, it's a little gross, right? And if you're if you're like a, like a Lectio Divina guy, if you're like somebody who likes to meditate on a verse, maybe all day long, all week long, if you do like holy yoga and you just like keep a scripture in your mind, in your heart throughout the day, may I suggest verse 22. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud... <laughs> Didn't pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. It's gross, right? And we're, and we're, you guys, we're like giggling about this thing because it's nasty. It's gross. And the NIV version that I'm reading from here, it even cleans it up a little bit more. It says, like the, <clears throat> the bowels discharged. <laughs> Original language time, right? This is when Hebrew comes in, uh, comes in handy to know. Uh, literally, it, it says, the dung fell out. <laughs> Like, it's the, it's the, the, it's the excrement, right? It's excrement. It, it all, all right, you get it, you get it. It's your verse, okay? Uh, okay, so that stuff, you know, it all comes out. And, uh, and then Ehud went out to the porch, and he shut the doors from the upper room behind him, and he locked them. And after he had gone, the servants came, right, because they were gone because of the secret thing, you know? The servants came, and he found the doors of the upper room locked, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. And they waited to the point of embarrassment to go in. Now, meanwhile, you know Ehud is just running as fast as his little, his little legs take him. We call that in our family, bus 11, right? That's how we get places. He's running out. He's getting out of town. And then uh, and the people are just the soldiers, the, the servants. They're just waiting outside. And it's, it's a story built for a youth group, especially the boys in the youth group, right? Like, this is what kind of story it is. And they're, they're outside, you know, and they're like, and they're kind of like making jokes. They're like, oh yeah, it looks like the king got a new throne to sit on, right? <laughs> right? And they're like, they're laughing, they're making jokes about this thing. They're like, hey, listen, it's kind of on for a little while though, right? Like, put your ear up, you know? 
do you hear, a, you hear any movement in there? And the other guy's like, ah, I smell one, though. <laughs> you know, zing, got him, right? Like, like, they're making jokes about this thing. But after a little while, they start to realize, you know, this has been way too long. I think something's, uh, I think something's going on here, right? So when they opened the door, oh, so, so when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key, they unlocked it, and there they saw. And I just have to believe that the author here, kind of landing the plane, is using that word Lord intentionally. Because all through a while, he's, he's been King Eglon, but only now, slumped over and dead, uh, the author of Judges says, oh yeah, and they found their Lord fallen to the floor, dead. And what follows in the story is 80 years of peace. 80 years of peace. All the other armies turned on King Eglon and the city of Moab after Eglon was dead. Israel was, was freed, and they ushered in the longest period of peace that we find in the book of Judges, which tells you it's only chapter 3. It's just going to go downhill from here. 80 years. Um, that's a fun story. What in the world is our takeaway of a story like this going to be for us in the week that Jesus has prepared for us uh, ahead? I don't want you guys to miss it, and so we're just going to name it. The Ehud Advantage that I've been hitting on this entire time. The Ehud Advantage is simply this, is that God doesn't save you from your left-handedness. He saves you through it. The Ehud Advantage that he has that you have, God doesn't save you from your left-handedness. He saves you through it. I think it would be an awesome practice, an awesome exercise as you leave here today to just ask the person that you came here with, ask the person that you're going to have lunch with later on today, and just say, like, hey, listen, what is my left-handedness? Uh, in, in what way am I, maybe, am I maybe suspect, gauche, weak, or just altogether goofy? In, in what way, metaphorically, am I capable of really only using my left hand? In what way am I disabled? In what way is there something in my past that I think that God absolutely can't use? And in what way is God not going to save me from that thing that I desperately want to hide? But what way is God going to actually use that and save me and accomplish something great in the world, not from it, but through it? I'll go first. Literally, as I'm like clacking away on my keyboard, preparing this message for today, earlier this week, I'm talking to a friend of mine on the phone, a local pastor, and we're just talking about like what goes into a good church planter, like, like the skills that somebody has to have in order to start a church well. And he's way smarter than I am, and he's like kind of listing all these things off, and he's like, you know, a good communicator, and somebody who knows music, and somebody who's finance, and facility management, and leadership, and administration skills, and going on and on and on. And I let him finish. And I'm like, bro, when God gave my wife and I this vision that would become encounter, I had none of those things, right? Like at best, maybe one or two, but that wasn't my story at all. Like, are you talking, somebody who's like good with music? Dude, I can't carry a tune in a bucket. You know why we turn it up so loud around here? Just so that you can't hear me sing, true story. I use my influence to kind of get, get that done, that Right? I'm like, you're, you're, talking, you're talking about like organization, finance, administration, fi financial world. <laughs> like, I don't know anything about running a nonprofit. Are you kidding me? Facility management. Oh, yeah. Like, I know a lot of, I was renting an apartment when we started Encounter Church, and now we've got these 
kind of weird, kind of quirky buildings. Let, let's be honest about that. Like, what am I going to do for managing a facility, right? This is my left-handedness entering into this church-planting world with my wife, not knowing what in the world I'm doing, totally ill-equipped at all of this. And God says, I got you. You don't know how to, like, balance the budget all that well? I got you. Don't, don't hide it. You don't know music? I got you. You don't know facility management? I got you. And what God does is says, did you know that the body has a lot of different parts, but it's one body? And so you go ahead, go ahead and just be your quirky left hand. Because we have an eye, we have an ears. We, 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 we've got a CPA or two that can work that budget and say, honestly, like managing a church really isn't that difficult of an organization financially to, to, to look at. So like, let me do that and let you focus on you. We've got some quirky buildings just at the same time that a, that a retired facilities guy from the Grenovis public schools. It's like 30 schools that he's been in charge of. It's like, I'm looking for something to do in retirement. Like, that's pretty awesome for a guy like me who's left-handed in this capacity. When it comes to music, I got you. You don't have to carry a tune in bucket. We, we've got this whole thing for you. Like, don't, whatever your quirky left-handedness is, don't hide that thing. Because God wants to use it. God wants to do something incredible with it. I know some of your stories. And I know some of you grew up and you didn't have a parent that was present and active in your life. And you're going, my kids will never know what that's like. And I don't think they will. Because God takes that left-handed suspect thing in your background And he goes, don't hide it from me. We're going to use it. A little bit, a little bit earlier in our in our rooted small groups experiences, we did the we did the money session, right? And I did like the money talk, and I kind of just said, hey, at the center of your tables, there's a little QR code. If you want to talk with somebody who's been through this, just scan the QR code, give me your information. We'll set you up with somebody who's been through it in personal finance and back again. I was delightfully shocked with the number of people who took us up on that. And I, and I talked to one of the couples just a couple of weeks ago, and I just said, hey, I'm so grateful. So grateful that you guys are taking time out of, out of your, your world to like just talk and, and walk with some, some couples who, who express some, some more interest in this world. And he goes, I have made worse mistakes for longer than anybody could. I'm honored to journey with somebody through this. And I'm thinking, thank you for not hiding your left-handedness, but for presenting it for God to use. If you've got something in your past, it's a crooked piece that you think doesn't fit, and it never could. I'm telling you, he uses those areas of greatest hurt for your greatest ministry. I see people with stories of eating disorders saying, I didn't want to tell anybody about this ever until I'm in youth group. I can see it. I can see somebody quietly, silently struggling for her life and I get it. Don't hide your left-handedness. Present it out there for God to use it. We say often around here that we impress people with our strengths. We connect through our weaknesses. 
we impress people through our right-handedness, but, but we connect and we make a difference with our left-handedness. It's a beautiful thing being a part of the church of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing to start to unpack people's stories, people's left-handedness. Anxiety and depression, we got a lefty for that. Substance abuse, alcohol, we've got a lefty that would love to sit across on the table from you who says, I get it. Uh, pornography, infidelity, the power of somebody who's saying, I've, I've seen victory and defeat and victory again. I get it. We've got a lefty for that. God doesn't want to save you from it. He's going to save you through it. Don't, don't hide your left-handedness. I also... Uh, I also have to point out that Ehud's weakness pointed to Jesus' strength. Points make a line. You've been hearing me say that. Points make a line. Uh, We have a couple already as this kind of downward, but this thing is just going to go on and go on and go on and and, and get much more. Uh, Joshua was the preceding guy. Joshua, big warrior, general, king type of character who just goes in there and kicks tail and takes name. I mean, Joshua is the man, right? Taking over all these cities. And then Adniel and then Ehud, who's kind of a quirky guy, but it's a fun fun story at the end of the day. And then it kind of goes all the way down to this degenerate named Samson. We're not doing him. We did him last year on a whole series, right? And this guy is just awful and he's really no judge at all and there's no peace at all. And then after that, we get David and he's kind of like this weak little shepherd boy. And then after that, coming to a church theater near you on December 25, this baby that's born. And the story like from strength to weakness like bottoms out in Jesus and say, okay, we're moving from strength to weakness. But no, we find out, right? We find out what strength looks like in exactly those moments, we find out this wee little, little weekly little baby, seven pounds, eight ounce Jesus, right, grows up and he gets nailed to a cross. Some of you have heard this one before, right? He dies naked on a cross. They put him in the grave. And we think, we think Eglon, the king, didn't see it coming when the dagger came out. The Jewish leaders, the Roman leaders, even the leaders today who are like, this is what a savior should look like. They didn't see it coming when the dagger of the resurrection came up out of that grave, guys. This whole story is a broken savior because it points to the need of a real savior. One who didn't just bring peace for 80 years, 40 years, three years, or no years at all, but the kind of savior that brings peace once and for all on into eternity. Ehud is a broken savior, but it points to our need of the better and truer savior in Jesus. And this last point, I'm honestly... I thought about not even sharing with you because I didn't know how it would land, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it anyway, and I'm going to ask for grace. This is a story. This is a story that boys and girls in ancient Israel sat around campfires and laughed about. You and I, we laugh at the story too. It's a goofy, quirky story. doesn't make it less true. It happened, but it's a goofy, quirky story. And they laughed. But you guys... Eglon was not somebody you laughed at. Moab, Amalekites, Ammonites, they were not people you laughed at. These are the people who beat you. These are the people who imprisoned and enslaved you. These are people who did things to your husbands, wives, and children that you can't say out loud. And they sat around campfires and they told the story and they laughed. 
And it points to the power of the gospel, I think. The hope that we have on into eternity. That they're able to look back and, and recolor the events of the past with colors of joy. It was a dark time, and I'm not taken away from that, but compared to the, to the glory that's coming, compared to the, the light that's coming, is it possible you're going to be around a campfire one day and you're going to laugh about the things that took place in your life? C.S. Lewis has this awesome quote. He calls it, he, the things in our life, the, the sufferings and setbacks we experience in our life, he calls it like a, like a bad night in the hotel. In the moment, if you've stayed in a hotel, you know how bad that gets. I'll tell you, I know how bad that can possibly get because I was the joker that decided to honeymoon with my wife with my entire family. Like, what was I? I don't know what I was thinking. They paid for it. That's what I was thinking. I was like, this is free, and I'm super Dutch. So honeymoon with the family sounds great. It's my wife and I were married for like 72 hours, and we're in a, we're in a rented house together with my brothers, their wives, their kids, and my, my parents, all within eight feet of us at all times. Yeah. And, uh, and the house didn't have air conditioning because, bless her heart, one, 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 of my, one of my people in my family doesn't like air conditioning. So we're like hot and sweaty and not in a good way. And we're just like, don't touch me. Don't touch me on this honeymoon. We're trying to go for a walk. I step on this banana slug. I gush him in half in my heel. I'm like, I hate it here, right? Try to go for a drive. I didn't know that we didn't have kids yet. In the back of the vehicle was all the kids' toys. And I just took them on a drive. And we still hear about that, right? They all went to this cool party or this like, um, this, this like concert deal and it was very expensive. My wife and I, we got married so young. We were basically ultrasounds getting married. But we, we're, still in co- we're still in college. So we had no money. And we're like, guys, we can't afford to go to the thing. And we're like, I'm thinking, we got the house to ourselves. This is, it doesn't get better than this. And we're like, oh, that's so awesome because we can't take our kids. Can you look after your nieces? And I'm like, what is happening, right? In the moment, in the moment, this is my honeymoon. Looking back with our family, we laugh about it. We laugh about it. C.S. Lewis said, those sufferings in life are like a bad night in a hotel. Guys, this is somebody who was on the front lines in France experiencing trench warfare in World War I. Uh, C.S. Lewis suffered from crippling depression, probably in and out his whole life. He meets the love of his life a bit later in his 50s, only to lose her to cancer 40 years later. He knows suffering. He knows pain. But more importantly, he knows the power of the gospel to recolor the events of the past with colors of joy. You have that coming. I want to invite you to look on to the events of your past and and to laugh at the job loss, to laugh at the heart murmur, to laugh at the traffic jams of life, to laugh at the septic tank backups, to laugh at those times your computer crashes, the breakup you thought you would never get over. You may end up laughing. The arthritis in your hand that is taking your life away from you a little bit at a time, you can laugh. Death itself can be laughed at because of the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of you too. You'd be around a campfire with Jesus telling the story of your life and you'll laugh too.
We're going to do that in a way. You've seen the communion elements out, and if you don't come from a church background or you're new here, you're like, this terrifies me. Please, I hope that it doesn't, it doesn't scare you, it doesn't intimidate you. This is a table that Jesus set for you in grace with an invitation attached to it. If you're not ready to experience communion, we're going to stand, we're going to sing some songs together. Don't come forward. That's okay. That's why we keep it dark in here. You're welcome to just be a part of the community. We're so glad you are. If you find yourself drawn to Jesus, maybe for the first time ever, this table has been set for you. Not by me, not by other people, volunteers around here. This table has been set by Jesus himself. Please come forward. It's his invitation of grace. As we come forward, we have our our servers coming forward as well. Uh, You'll hear the words, uh, the body of Christ given for you with the bread, the blood of Christ shed for you with this little cup of juice. Savor it. It's a table he set for you. A table of Christ. We've got a lot of people here, and we love that. It might take a minute. Be patient, infinitely more important. Be present. Present in the moment, Jesus is meeting you. As you take your elements, you can head on back to your seats and savor them as you feel led. I want to invite you to stand up wherever you might be watching from. And hear these words that the church has repeated over and over and over again. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And breaking it, he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the blood of my new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. For when you eat this bread, when you drink from this cup, we proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus until he comes again. These are the gifts of God for you, the people of God.